The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We are joined right now by Sean McCarthy, CEO at Build America Mutual. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for putting us up in your building here. You're Jen and we Paul, it. it's really great to have you here. We're, we're, we're thrilled to be the host. One of the big stories today... Charlie Munger passing. Any experiences, any thoughts there? You've been in this you, business a long time. You know, um, uh, Charlie Munger was one of the great credit thinkers, um, uh, really, in the history of uh, credit thinking. Um, last night, I actually reread uh, an essay that he gave, he wrote in the, when he was in his late 60s and then rewrote when he was 81. It's called The Psychology of Human Misjudgment. He essentially articulates 25 ways that people convince themselves to make the wrong decision. Um, it's excellent. I'd, I recommend, I'm sure you can get it right online, but I mean, it just it shows how brilliant uh, an individual he was. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, but the stories we're, we're seeing in the reporting today is really, I think, bringing that to life for a lot of people. All right, Build America Mutual here. Tell us about your business. Uh, tell us about, really, explain to our listeners kind of really what you do, how you guys are integrated into the municipal bond market in this country. Sure. Um, so uh, uh, Build America Mutual is an insurance company that guarantees um, municipal bonds. And so essentially what we do is we act like a, a parent. Uh, if, you, um, you know, if, if you have your kids and uh, they get a student loan and um, you need to co-sign for that student loan, you want them to get a job and pay it back, uh, our job uh, is... To, uh, if they fail to make that particular payment, that uh, we make that payment for them. Uh, so um, our job is to sort of make in, uh, bonds more secure by being AA rated, um, or we're AA rated by Standard & Poor's. Um, and in doing that, we create greater stability in the market for the bonds, less volatility um, uh, in terms of how they uh, fluctuate. Um, and we provide credit uh, uh, diligence, which we share for free on our website, um, they're called credit profiles, a description of each deal that we underwrite, uh, and we update that annually. And it's just available as a service because we're a mutual insurance company. I love that analogy, the parents of the bond market, <laughs> keeping all the kids in line. But now let me ask you, what's the demand for insurance in this particular type of market? So, it's, um, so if you think about it, what the insurable market would be, uh, it's not, uh, you know, before the Great Recession, um, 
municipal bonds were were guaranteed up to about 60% of the total market, which would have been about over 80% of what could be insurable. So if you look at the market as a whole and you think that, you know, AAA um, bonds won't use bond insurance, and, and there are certain credits that are not investment grade or outside of the underwriting um, appetite of ourselves or the industry, um, what's left in the middle are insurable transactions. And in that area, about 25% of the bonds are insured. So that's quite a bit, that's quite a big growth. It's about a 30% growth since COVID started in terms of how much market penetration there is. And so has that changed pre-COVID to post-COVID? Yes, Kinda, what, it has. So investors demand more insurance, more guarantees, more stability now? They're using bond insurance more than they did before. And so there's a number of things that bond insurance really does. It, um, it provides, not only is it providing uh, the uh, default protection, which I described as you, you know, standing behind your children and their student loans, um, but, it, it, but it also um, provides uh, a stability in the market and it, and it provides a security so that um, you may not have the time to understand small or complex credits, we're guaranteeing them, and then essentially what that means is we're promising to pay timely payment of principal and interest on that bond when it's due. So there's different than other forms of insurance, which mm-hmm. once you file a claim and there's a negotiation, we pay immediately and then we mitigate later, which is one of the strengths and why individual investors can count on, on the strength of a financial guarantee. Can you give us a sense of what the sentiment is that you're experiencing in this market? And it, it, it's kind of like a pre and post COVID question, yeah. but also like, is there some key lesson about investor psychology as we started off talking about at the beginning of this segment that you'd want to say that you've noticed? So I'd say two things. Um, one is interest rates have gone up a lot. So yep. the primary market, meaning the new, the, the overall volume in, in the market for new issue has been lower for the last two or three years. Um, that being said, the new money portion, the portion of the market that is just building uh, uh, new projects, new schools, new roads, um, that's this year will be its second highest year ever. 2022 was the, was, was the highest. But there are no more refinancings, if you just think about it. Um, uh, with interest rates going up, the concept of saving money at, by refinancing that bond has gone away. And that was about a third of the market historically. So uh, that's one thing. But if you look at the sentiment in the market overall, a good example would be this last election in 2023. There were 70% of all bond issues that were on the ballot were approved. So that was $60 billion worth of new uh, transactions that are going to come to the market uh, just from the 2023 elections. So now we look at the credits generally and we think to ourselves, two things have happened since COVID. One is the federal government stepped in and gave an awful lot of money to all kinds of communities. And some of that money still is being spent by them. Uh, It sort of explains in one way why the bipartisan infrastructure bill has not actually been drawn on a lot because the really uh, most municipalities survived well through through that um, uh, crisis of the pandemic and and part of that was that they went into the pandemic being strong I mean you know so you think three or four years ago there was lots of um, uh, you know all the coffers were filled at most municipalities so now what we're looking at is to see what happens as the rest of the money that they've been given runs out and what is the real environment for what's going to happen to municipal credits going forward uh, in terms of an operational standpoint. Who decides whether a bond is insured? Is it the issuer, the underwriter? Who decides that? So uh, nobody uses us unless we save the money. 
Um, okay. So, uh, just, so, so when, when you're issuing your bond, the underwriters are on the desk, first the financial advisors who advise the municipalities will say you should consider bond insurance. Um, uh, we'll underwrite the transactions. Uh, as, the mar- as the time comes to bring the deal to market, they'll look at it and say, well, how much is uh, BAM charging and how much are we going to save as a municipality? So, so that's really the decision okay. that's made right at the time in the market. So when markets are more volatile, Bond insurance is used more um, uh, when markets are more more stable and people have the time, or when volumes are lower, they have more time to t- take a look at the credits and may say, "I'll just take take that bond without the insurance." It's interesting because one thing I'm wondering is about how the election next year, the U.S. presidential election, is going to impact demand for this kind of insurance. I mean, already we're expecting maybe some market volatility with the Fed shifting direction, but how does the election figure into that? So so two things to, to remember. First of all, um, you know, uh, people look to the federal government's, you know, role in, in infrastructure, and it's it's the big stuff. You know, so it's, uh, you know, it's I-95 yep. and the Hoover Dam and, and big things that are done at a federal level. But, you know, 80, 90 percent of what you think of as infrastructure is done at the state and local governmental level. So um, these things are issued by, you know, towns and cities, and and that's really uh, the fundamental uh, component. So if you look at what's going to happen in the election next year, it's really a function that resides at the state and local governmental level in terms of what, uh, how the markets are going to move. Um, and, you know, what happens to interest rates overall will affect, you know, volume uh, and whether there's a prospect of refinancing as interest rates start to decline as our prior um, uh, speaker was uh, uh, advocating. But I've been told by municipal bond folks that municipalities issue when they need to, not when the market's great. So, I mean... That's that's true. Um, ex- so think about what's happened. They have a lot of money. Volume's been down because yeah. they have had they, they haven't had to issue. But remember, there's this whole incredibly pent up demand for uh, rebuilding and, yeah. and and creating new projects. And so the things to really watch for, if I was an investor on the other side, is to say, okay. W- What's going to happen to interest? What does high interest rates do to municipalities? Well, what does it do to mortgage rates? Yep. What does it then do to commercial real estate values? What does it do to residential mortgage uh, uh, values? Those are some of the key underpinning issues that are that that move uh, credits good, bad, or indifferent. Okay, great stuff, uh, Sean. Thanks so much for joining us, Sean McCarthy. He's the CEO of Build America. Uh, these are the offices we're hanging out in today, so we appreciate uh, you. Uh, hosting us here, Sean McCarthy, CEO of Build American Mutual. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go right now to our next guest, Priya Misra, Portfolio Manager, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, uh, joins us here via Zoom. Nor, I mean, uh, Priya, what do you make of what's happened in the rate market just in the last, you know, I'm going to say just a month of November? Boy, we've had, you know... Most of the yield curve was sitting right around 5%, and now we've got the 10-year 
you know, at four and a quarter percent. That's some move. What do you make of it? Sure. It's been very volatile, pretty vicious. So I think if you go back a little bit, September, October, we saw a pretty big move higher in rates, right, from that four and a quarter all the way up to 5%. I think it was a perfect storm of stronger data, hawkish Fed, more supply. I actually think the buyers got nervous. What we've seen over the last month is a reversal of all of this. So you had the U.S. Treasury saying, well, maybe not as much long in supply. You had economic data, which is slowing. I think we are going to debate for a while whether soft landing or hard landing. But it's clear that the economic data is moderating both inflation as well as growth. And then importantly, in the last few weeks, we've heard from the Fed. And I would say in the last two days, we've heard from the Fed very clearly that the hiking cycle seems to be behind us. We're end of cycle. And I think the market's now running ahead with what's next. When do the cuts start to come? I, so so I, I think that the move in rates, you know, it was a technical-led move, I think, beyond 440 on 10s. That move was very fast, up to 5. I think we've retraced it. Now I think we're going to settle into a range, you know, 3, uh, three and 3 quarters or maybe 4% to 4.5 or 3 and 3 quarters to 4 and a quarter. I think that's the 10-year the range as long as we're in a soft landing. If things deteriorate some more, and the, we're talking about the Fed having to cut a lot sooner or a lot more than what's priced in, and I think there's a decent chance of that. At that point, then the 10-year could absolutely go closer to 3%. But I think that the data right now suggests more soft landing, and I think that's essentially what has gotten priced in. So it's been a very quick move because it was a very quick move up to 5%. I think now we can sort of consolidate in this you know, close to 4% range. You know, I want to ask you about the speed of this move. I mean, it really is breathtaking. And one question that niggles at me is, what's the risk that people have got it wrong here? So I think th there are a few assumptions in the market right now. Things are slowing, and I think the assumption is that we're slowing to trend and we won't slow any further. I think it's an open question. There are cracks we're seeing. These cracks could absolutely deepen. So when you talk about the, you know, what could go wrong, where things could slow into a recession. And that's why I'm looking at every data point and digging into all of the details. I think aggregate data is useful, but we have to look at the distribution because I think, you know, when the cost of capital is high, there's a big difference between the haves and the have-nots. And I think it's going to be important to look at all of that. So I think that could be one assumption. The other assumption in the last few days has become, has, uh, become when does the Fed start to cut? Can they, I think the soft landing predicates on the Fed easing soon. And the assumption there is that inflation is has declined and it's going to decline to 2% quickly. I think that could be a big assumption. That could be that the, the actual data could, could show that inflation may be stalling. I think the last mile of inflation is, you know, there's, there's some Fed rhetoric that it could be harder. And so I think even if things start to slow down and inflation stalls at two and a half or two and three quarters, and the Fed says, well, we're not a target, and so we can't cut rates preemptively. I think that could be an assumption which puts the soft landing narrative at risk. So there's a lot. And then if financial conditions ease a lot, which they've been easing in the last few weeks, you could have the Fed saying, well, we didn't want them to tighten too much, but now they're easing too much. So I think this dance between financial conditions and the Fed, that also can go the other way if the Fed thinks the easing is too much. So it, it's a bit tenuous. Um, I do think we're in the midst of the FOMO year-end rally. But I think as we start next year, we have to, so your question's well uh, put, because I think a lot of these assumptions could come, uh, could be challenged. 
So Priya, on the yield curve here, where do you see the most opportunity? So I have to say, as much as I'd like to position for a steepener, and we have a bit of a steepening bias in our portfolio, I think it, it, it does depend on the Fed starting to cut rates soon. So I think the curve actually need not do a whole lot in the near term. I think duration might be a better trade than the curve. I think longer term, the cur longer term, the curve should steepen as the Fed cuts rates. You know, you should have a more normal upward sloping yield curve. But we're not close to the Fed target on inflation. And I think they're going to be reluctant to cut rates soon. So I think the steepening is going to run out of steam. It's steepened a lot in the last couple of days. I think if we get, we have key data uh, points coming up in a Fed meeting, so the next few weeks could steepen, then I think we'll stall out. And I would prefer being long duration here. I think 10s north of 4% are cheap. Real rates, 10-year uh, real rates above 2%. I would argue that's a better uh, risk reward than uh, you know positioning for the curve one way or the other. But longer term, I think it should steepen. You know, we're looking at some price data coming out tomorrow, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what your own expectations are, and then what are the risks that inflation doesn't come down as quickly as the Fed would like? Sure. So, I mean, when I decomposed the move in inflation higher, there were supply issues and there were demand issues. The supply ones, I have a lot of conviction. Those issues have largely been resolved. Time, I mean, People spend a lot of time thinking about supply chain issues. And so I think that the base effect, commodities are coming off. And so I think we, we have conviction that inflation's coming down from the supply side. Uh, even labor force participation, which is a labor market supply um, technical, has uh, you know did move positive. On the demand side, you know, I think there has been some improvement on the demand side. Growth is absolutely slowing. Fourth quarter is probably in the 1% type GDP range, and that should put somewhat uh, downward pressure on inflation. But there are other components. Housing, it's a well-documented lag in terms of how quickly housing inflation can come down. And the labor market is still tight. So I think while I do expect over the next year or two inflation to head closer to 2%, I think the speed in which it has declined this year we might be a bit disappointed. To your question on what's the risk, I think the risk might be not so much for tomorrow. I think we probably see another decline. But I would say the risks are a little asymmetric. The market is not going to like any upside risk to inflation because that puts this whole question of the Fed easing, uh, you know, making policy less restrictive, it throws that into question because the Fed is very clear. They want inflation close to 2%. We're not at 2 So any upside risk to inflation, I think, will not be taken kindly by any market, um, frankly. And I think um, with a tight labor market, with wages still above levels that would be consistent with 2% inflation, I think the risks are still somewhat to the upside, more from a demand, um, hmm. you know, rather than a supply perspective on right. inflation. So, Pri, you mentioned the labor market's still tight here. We have an unemployment rate of 3.9%. Where do you think the Fed would be comfortable seeing that go? So the Fed's forecast for inflation at the end of uh, next year is 4.1, which is actually very close to Nehru or their estimate of the long run level of unemployment. But you asked about comfort, which I think what you're trying to get at is at what level do they get nervous about a recession or too much of a slowdown mm -hmm. and they start to cut rates. And I would say it needs to be 
somewhat higher than that 4.1%. I think closer to 5% would make them uncomfortable because that's far off away from Nehru. It would put downward pressure on inflation and they certainly don't want to sh overshoot on inflation below 2%. Um, and so, you know, I think if we get north of four and a half, you'll start to see some nervousness building at the Fed that the labor market may be slowing faster. But again, I would look at details. If it's a rise in the unemployment rate because of participation, that's actually good news. That means people are coming back to the labor force. If it is a rise in the unemployment rate because payroll growth is slowing and we're running negative payroll growth, I think that, you know, a number in that four and a half to five range, I think would is, is something the Fed would be concerned. And I think then they might be more open to cutting rates. You know, it's interesting to talk a, about, a little bit more about the labor market because it's been through such an enormous ride this year, not just the persistently low levels of unemployment, but we're seeing so much union activity, activity amongst labor yep. um, groups to look for higher wages, winning those remark, winning those fights, as Nora was pointing out in her talk about GM earlier. And, you know, I wonder if these higher prices are really just going to start to get entrenched, how quickly, you know, how easy it'll be to, you know, convince people that the um, inflation is really going to be headed in the right direction when we've seen so many victories in the labor market. Right. I think when the labor market is tight, you start to see wage pressure. We saw it in certain industries in the last two years. You're seeing it in others, as, as you brought up through the union side. I will say as inflation comes down, uh, real wage growth for the household sector has improved tremendously this year. In fact, I think that's behind why the consumer has been that resilient, that wages were not able to keep up with inflation this year, and they have. And in, in fact, depending on your consumption basket, you could argue that wages have been higher than, uh, than inflation. But I think you hit the key point, I think for the Fed to have comfort that inflation, is, the inflation genie is back in the bottle and 2% is where we're headed, they'll want to see wage inflation come back down. So that as important as tomorrow's number is going to be on PCE, I think that wage number a week from now, average hourly earnings or the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, we look at ECI, we look at many measures of wages. And unless you see that heading closer to, I would say ECI in the 3% uh, year over year range, which we're above that, it's hard to see how you get inflation back down. And I do think the Fed, having lost some credibility on inflation, they're going to want to make sure that they're getting all signs that inflation's heading back to 2% before they can sort of bless the market pricing of, of rate cuts. So yeah, wages is going to be absolutely key and more union activity or a continued strong labor market will, will put that uh, you know, we, we'll have that upside risk to inflation from the labor market side, I think then that can just last longer. So it's absolutely critical. All right, Priya Misra, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts, your perspective. Priya Misra, Portfolio Manager at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So we are here at the Build America Mutual uh, HQ down in Lower Manhattan. Jennifer Ryan, Paul Sweeney here with you. We're also streaming live 
uh, uh, on that internet thing. I think it's Bloomberg TV, the kids call it. So we're talking a, a lot of focus here on the municipal bond market. And boy, we got a great guest coming up. Tremendous educational pedigree. Uh, she went to some <laughs> place up in Cambridge for college. I can't remember the name, but... She is a graduate of the Lawrenceville School, so a fellow alum of Lawrenceville, so we appreciate Alex Patron joining us, a director of fixed income at Rockefeller Asset Management. She's been on the street a long time, so know, knows this municipal bond market. I want to start with volatility. It, like, I don't know the trading day-to-day -day trading in municipal bond market like I know the treasury market, but the treasury market is just all over the place. Yeah. I'd never seen swings like this. I mean, and I attribute it to, you know, my former fixed income, like I worked at Solomon Brothers, there'd be like 500 people on the floor trading government bonds. Now there's like three, you know. So uh, I blame the investment banks who were because of the regulations. But talk to us about the volatility in the municipal bond market. What do you guys have to deal with day to day as investors? Yeah, absolutely, Paul. Great question. And, you know, shout out to Lawrenceville alums. Yeah. Great school as well. Love that. You know, liquidity has been much more challenged in today's environment. And it's really across the board. It's looking at treasuries, it's looking at corporates, um, and municipals are not unscathed there. So we've seen much more pronounced bouts of municipal market illiquidity and volatility in 2022. And the key difference today versus when I started is the dealer desk community yep. has shrunk in a number of ways, whether it's reducing headcounts, whether it is firms that are shutting down their desks um, or ongoing M&A in the space, or just simply put, the amount of capital that's committed to being long muni risk today is lower than it was pre-GFC. That number over the last year has averaged, call it somewhere between, call it 12 billion or so. We've had moments this year where it's about 7 billion. We've had moments where it's closer to nine. In that environment where the municipal market has grown to 4 trillion and you have tremendous um, rate volatility that at times might spook retail investors and lead to an outflow cycle out of call it open-end funds. At that moment in time, when you have a number of investors that are looking for liquidity, and really limited mount sheets in the dealer community, it creates more pronounced volatility. Add in factors there such as insurance and bank capital that previously might have been a backstop for the municipal market in these periods of volatility, the muni to treasury ratios that you have to start to hit these days becomes a little bit higher because banks are not long as much of that risk. We saw that post SVB where banks started to really reduce their commitment to being long munis. And so from our perspective, it creates a tremendous amount of volatility, a tremendous mm -hmm. amount of opportunity. It's really kind of interesting when you look at how both predictable the municipal market can be in periods of liquidity, um, but also how unpredictable. And what we're seeing right now is actually a shift in that trend. Right now, if you look at performance over the course of November, munis have outperformed. The dealer community has been stepping up and going long risk here. And you get that seasonality every single year in which calendar starts to dry up. <laughs> Rates have stabilized a bit, which has really helped to influence demand for risk. There's a view that maybe we're nearing the end of yep. this rate hiking cycle. And now we've gotten to this point where it seems that liquidity is quite present at this moment in time. We think that that lasts through January. But from our perspective, you know, the message is simple. There will be periods of illiquidity. There will be elevated volatility. That is an opportunity for investors. If you could talk a little bit more about the opportunity, I mean, where broadly speaking do you see this? And I'm not just talking about, you know, what sorts of issuers, what sorts of states or municipalities, but also on a relative fixed income basis. Yeah, absolutely. So when we look for um, 
When we look for opportunities, we think about a couple of key things. We look at the yield curve dynamics. Where are people net sellers? Where is their best value? If you look at the shape of the municipal yield curve today, it is really interesting. I think this plays into some of what we've seen in the rise of separately managed accounts, uh, maybe the decline in demand from open-end funds. The municipal yield curve, the shape of it looks like a soup ladle. That's what <laughs> many of my colleagues like to call it. I typically lean towards the Big Dipper. But what you see quite simply is the curve is inverted. You get tremendous flatness in the curve from three to 10 years, and then it steepens back out a little farther out the curve. Well, what's driving that? That is certainly the rise in separately managed accounts. We've seen over the course of my career the democratization of SMAs. When I started in the business at Morgan Stanley, it was brokerage. It was buying and selling bonds direct out of your inventory at the bank. So that's not the case today. Fees are much lower. Minimums are much lower. Ladders are much more prevalent within the market. That's what I have. There you go. We yeah. should talk yes. about this maybe after. I tell the, every governor of New Jersey I'm the largest creditor, <laughs> private creditor, so you better be nice to me. Perfect, sure. perfect. Well, you know, they're doing much better yes. these past few years, so that's wonderful. But what it's really meant from our perspective is it creates active, it creates the opportunity for active managers to really be thoughtful around the yield curve and trying to maximize around steepness, around yield, around income. On the flip side, it also means that issuers are probably going to try to think through how can we best issue in the market today. And maybe that means an increase, and we've seen some of that in the last year or two, of the zero to five year issuance space, as well as thinking about 10 to 15 years as trying to optimize both if you're the issuer, but also if you're the investor. What are the sectors that you guys like these days? Yeah. So when we think about credit risk, there, we, we need to be mindful of the fact that credit risks are forming here. Okay. We are heading into a period of a slowdown. For me, I think we go back to the Muni playbook. And what is the Muni playbook through a cycle? As you start to see economic contraction, you want to stick to high quality, large geos that have managed through, have rainy day reserve funds that have built up through this. Now, we know that 16 states are already signaling that their economies are contraction. Really? In contract New York is one of them. Oh, boy. Yes. Uh, Midwest, there's yeah. a number of states. New Jersey seems to be okay for now. Yeah. So we'll keep sure. a close eye on that. Big pharma. But, but what it tells us quite simply is we know a slowdown is coming. Essential service revenue bonds, right? How many times have we talked about water, sewer, elects through these points in the cycle, trying to stay to areas where you have steady revenue streams, uh, where you have the ability to raise rates as needed. We know that housing is well supported here. So being mindful that in large cities, in large um, states, they should fare well, albeit with some structural imbalances as rising employment costs certainly are putting pressure on budgets today. All right. Great stuff. Alex Patrone, thank you so much for joining us. Alex Patrone, Director of Fixed Income at Rockefeller Asset Management a proud graduate of the Lawrenceville School in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, and I can't remember where she went to college. I think that was probably pretty good, too, so we appreciate getting that. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, 
top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Today, we've talked to bankers who issue this stuff, get the deals done. We've talked to investors who invest in this stuff. How about the people who actually spend the money? Now, we're joined by one of those folks today, Eric Russell. He's a treasurer of the state of Connecticut. Uh, he joins us here at, in our uh, offices here of Build America Mutual. He was elected Connecticut state treasurer in 2022, so we appreciate him uh, making some time for us. Eric, thanks so much for joining us here. What is a baby bond? So uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, so Connecticut Baby Bonds is a first-in-the-nation program that we passed in Connecticut and fully funded this year. And the goal is really about addressing uh, generational poverty in the state. Um, and so for under the program, for every child born into poverty in Connecticut, there'll be $3,200 invested in a trust on their behalf. And that mm -hmm. money is managed by my office. And that money will grow over the life of that child. And between the ages of 18 and 30, uh, individuals will be able to access those resources for initiatives that are all about helping to build wealth. So they can use uh, those funds to help purchase a home in Connecticut, to start or invest in a Connecticut business, uh, to help pay for post-secondary education or job training, or to roll into a retirement account. Um, and we know one of the biggest indicators for someone's ability to build wealth over time is to have some capital to start with. Uh, that is a piece to this puzzle, but it really fits in with Connecticut's bigger picture as we've made a lot of progress in addressing our overall fiscal health. It's also about looking to uh, making investments in people and investing in the future. So the you state. sold bonds to the public and took those proceeds to so, fund this program. So we actually did not. So okay. the, the program was initially uh, proposed that it was going to be uh, bonded. So we were going to issue $50 million a year uh, for 12 years to fund the program for 12 years in total. Um, it, would be, it was going to be a $600 million investment. Um, and we passed that legislation back in 2021. There was some pushback to funding the program that way. And when I came into office, my main goal was to look at ways that we could fund the program and keep it viable, uh, but also do so at a way that was most cost effective to taxpayers. And so what we ended up doing uh, is we had a, a debt service reserve fund that was actually there to back um, bondholders from a previous bond issuance uh, with much of the progress that we've made in terms of our fiscal health. Um, we were actually able to uh, issue a surety and release the funds from that account. We actually did that through uh, Build America. And um, we were able to take those funds and move them directly into the Baby Bonds Trust to fully fund it. Gotcha. Um, and the benefit there was, one, because we, are, we put $400 million essentially into this Baby Bond Trust. We have a longer runway to invest that money now that we're not issuing over a 12-year window. So we're actually able to cut $200 million off the overall cost of the program, as well as eliminate the uh, interest and in, in carrying costs for doing so. Um, and we're really proud of it. We actually just received the um, Bond Buyers uh, Innovative Deal of the Year Award oh, cool. for this transaction. Um, and so, you know, it was a, a really collaborative effort, but it's an exciting opportunity for our state. 
How easy do you think it would be for other states to replicate that? I mean, you've got to have the political will for it, but also you mentioned that he had to go through an unusual sort of financing move in order to get it done. And also, have you had any states call you up and inquire about it? Definitely. So we've been having conversations with several states. There were states that replicated our legislation that was passed in 2021 and um, had some had moved that through their legislature and out of committee, um, but there isn't any other state that's actually fully passed the legislation or funded it yet. Uh, we certainly have been uh, helpful. I am going to be. I've been in touch with several treasurers that are looking at this program, and I think different states are going to look at different ways of funding it. Um, Nevada, uh, their proposed legislation was to bond as we had initially uh, contemplated. Massachusetts has a similar program that they're going to be moving uh, through their legislature this session. But I, th I think at its core, I think people understand that there is uh, a really significant wealth gap in most states across the country, and it's a gap that's continued to widen. Right. And so as we look at ways to continue to invest in people, it's about really thinking at looking at some of these um, more unique ways of uh, creating more fairness and closing some of these uh, really large wealth gaps we have across the country. All right, stepping back uh, as a treasurer, give us just kind of the, the state of the state in terms of the financial position of the great state of Connecticut. Sure. Uh, the state is doing well. The state's doing very well. We um, were able to kind of withstand the pandemic well, um, and it was a challenge. Obviously, we're in a place now where we've uh, recovered all of the jobs that we lost during the pandemic. Uh, in 2022, we've had a net um, 57,000 people that moved into the state of Connecticut. Um, and in just in terms of our overall fiscal position, I mean, we've made a lot of progress in terms of uh, paying down uh, long-term debt and uh, building up our rainy day fund, which we have at uh, its maximum uh, threshold right now at 15% of our budget. Um, and so, you know, and with that, we've been able to lower costs. We had the state's largest um, tax cut this last session. Um, and so I think it's the state overall is, is doing well. There's certainly things that we are uh, very mindful of in terms of work that we need to continue to do, uh, big picture in our state. But I think there's been um, really strong support for the direction we're moving in. You know, as it's a Muni show today, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on infrastructure investment. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what are Connecticut's needs and what are the big projects that you want to push through in the near term? I-95. Yeah. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> for sure. So I, you know, I, I think uh, in looking at Connecticut, one of the big pieces is housing, uh, for sure, as we're not alone in that. Uh, but I think both in terms of building more housing and bringing down the cost of housing in our state is really a big priority. I know this is a strong commitment of the governors, and I know it's something that I, I think the legislature knows would be really big for us. Uh, but I think to your point, I mean, transportation, obviously everything up and down the nine, uh, I-95 corridor. Um, and across the state, but really, you know, improving times in terms of, of rail. I know that um, we've received a lot of federal money to really improve, um, to get more trains on the tracks and to really improve time. Um, but I think we have to think bigger picture about these investments, too, and try to look at ways to marry um, transit with uh, community renewal um, and uh, really investing in communities, um, bigger picture. Um, and so I think that's what we're going to see. Uh, moving forward from an infrastructure perspective. You know, from the pandemic, we had so many companies and so many individuals leave the greater metro New York area for Florida or Texas or Tennessee. Um, how does the state of Connecticut think about attracting and retaining companies to the state? Is it all just about tax breaks or how do you think about that? What's your strategy? So I, I think it's about continuing to invest in our state. And I think in 
we've had to look at ourselves and really um, address many of our kind of longstanding fiscal issues as a state. I think that is really important to business, I think, in our ability to uh, lower costs long term. Um, and so, you know, we've done that. I think if you look at our fiscal guardrails that were put in place in 2017, which have, you know, they created caps around what we can spend, what revenue we can uh, really count on coming in. We've been able to pay down nearly $8 billion uh, in additional contributions to our pension debt under those fiscal guardrails. Um, and so I think folks on the outside are looking at that, knowing that this is a commitment for us big picture. But I think at the end of the day, we have to stick true to our values and why we um, are strong as a state. And I think it's the quality of life, it's education um, in our state. Um, and those are all things that we've continued to invest in. You mentioned that the, you mentioned the tax cut. Is there room for another tax cut? Something to attract companies and indeed to give families and consumers and households a break? I think you know the governor is certainly looking at ways to lower cost as a whole. Um, you know we're in a time right now where we see revenues softening. I think this is happening across the board. What's great is that our fiscal guardrails and the um, budgeting measures we've put in place have us in a really sound position that even with some of these softening revenues, uh, we are projecting surpluses. Uh, we will have by the end of next fiscal year, we'll be at about 18%, so nearly $4 billion in our rainy day fund. Um, so I think there certainly is go are going to be looking at uh, opportunities to lower costs for families. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time here. Eric Russell, he's the treasurer of the state of Connecticut, joining us uh, here talking about the state of Connecticut and financing some of the growth initiatives uh, in the state. We appreciate getting your time. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.